Hey friends, welcome to Reorthodox Theology. My name is Justin, and today's guest, I'm really excited about it. Her name is Dr. Janet Timby. She's an adjunct associate professor at Catholic University of America. We talk about one of her areas of expertise, which is Shanute, an ancient Egyptian monk. Her areas of interest include Coptic language and literature, the origins of monasticism, and the history of the Christian Near East. She's brilliant. You cannot read about Shanute without coming across her translations of his work. Thanks for tuning in. Dr. Timby, thank you so much for joining the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, of course. You know, like I told you, I'm on this journey of kind of discovering who Jesus is and how have people thought of him throughout history. And I came across your work on a very interesting person um, who I thought you pronounced it Chanute, but you corrected me. It's, yeah, it's a three syllables. Yeah, Chanute. Yeah, very interesting. So I think at first, let's, a good place to start is who is Chanute and why has he had, uh, been recently discovered? You mentioned in your writing. Right. Um, well, he was leader of a, a monastic federation known as the White Monastery Federation in Upper Egypt uh, from the late 4th to the 5th century, federation that included two monasteries for men and one for women. Uh, and also he's the author of the largest surviving corpus of original Coptic literature. He probably died around 465. Not it, it's not as easy to determine when he was born, uh, but he seems to have lived past the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Recently rediscovered because of really because of the work of uh, Stephen Emmel, hmm. a scholar at Munster in Germany. Starting about 30 years ago, he worked hard to uh, identify works of Chanute in manuscripts in various European. And American libraries and kind of reassembling them. And once he did that, reassembled the corpus, uh, many more scholars were enabled to work on the Chinute. Previously, you knew that there were these scattered things and some had been published, but Emil's work was really pivotal in making it available to a lot more people, the texts. Then people started to study them and translate them. Hmm. Lots of important work has been done that relied on Emil. People like Caroline Schroeder, Rebecca Krawick, Stephen Davis, mm. especially at Yale. Um, so so why, why do you think, because I, I remember reading that, I'm, I'm curious, were scholars aware of Chanute throughout history or um, was well, he marginal? It was, it, the problem was that nothing, nothing from his original work was translated into other languages. So there's a, there was a loss of Coptic as Arabic became the language of daily life in Egypt, right? But mm. uh, European scholars kind of rediscovered it. Of course, it had always, the Coptic had always remained a liturgical language in the Coptic Orthodox Church, right? But they weren't really speaking it. Fixed, fixed formula uh, remained in the Coptic Orthodox Church, but otherwise it had kind of disappeared as a living language, rediscovered by European scholars starting in the 18th century. So they did uh, become aware of the work, some of the works of Chanute, 
but they were mostly in uh, partial manuscripts. Some things were published, especially around the early 20th century, 1910 or so. Uh, German and French scholars published some material, but it was really pivotal that Emil, that was his doctoral dissertation, uh, reassembling everything, and it made it possible for lots of people to get uh, access to the works of Chinute. Got it. Wow, that, that, that's so interesting. So let's let's go a little bit more on um, Chinute's background. So what is his general background? Um, in essence, yeah. who was this man? Yeah, well, he uh, seems to have been born uh, in Upper Egypt, the area of ancient Panopolis, which is now modern Sohag. That's about roughly, you know, upstream on the Nile, about 200 miles south of modern day Cairo, or 300 miles south of the the coast, you know, mm-hmm. Alexandria. Mm-hmm. Uh, judging by his writings, he seems to be well educated, uh, and yet. You know, it had some training in the standard styles of rhetoric of the fourth century, hmm. how you composed a sermon. But he seems to have joined the monastery as a as a young man, and and basically continued his own education on his own in the monastery through hmm. immersion in scripture. He seems to have been able to read the Bible in Greek, Old Old Testament Greek translation, and obviously New Testament as well as in Coptic, when there were already a lot of Coptic translations. He immerses himself in the Bible. He quotes almost every biblical book at some point in his writings. Mm. Wow. Some are personal favorites for him, but you know he, he cites everything. Um, an interesting thing about him is that the first original writing that survives from Chanute, uh, it's addressed to the head, the then head of the monastery, the person who preceded him, and also to the community at large, criticizing conduct in the monastery mm. and therefore criticizing the leadership. And then things, there's kind of a uh, uncertain period, and then Chinute emerges as the leader. One thinks it might have he might have become the head of a sort of reform movement that mm-hmm. other people were aware that discipline was really lacking in this monastery. Sure. Uh, Interesting. You know, he, he makes very specific charges, uh, and and then it, it just kind of, we don't have a clear record, but then the next thing we know, he's the head of the monastery. Hmm. Interesting. Can yeah. you give an example of, like, a charge that he was given, or that well, he gave? Th- that he, what he accuses, in particular, of... Uh, sexual misconduct among men in the monastery. And that the leader knows about this, but basically isn't doing anything to stop it. Gotcha. You know, this, is, this would not be an unusual problem in monastic communities at, at that period, sure. and lots of other periods as well. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and he, it, it is... It continues to be a very important thing for him to enforce discipline. Hmm. And, and yet, the way I see that is more in the sense of uh, we're trying to live as a group here. And if you have these kind of intense personal relationships, it undermines the, it undermines the group. Yeah. It leads to a certain kind of favoritism hmm. that undermines the group. 
So what gave him like authority or power? So you said like he emerged as leader. Is there any indication of what happened? Or was it just uh, you know, his opinions or? You know, I don't, you know, that's an interesting question. It's really uh, un- unclear exactly how that happened. Hmm. Uh, generally, someone remained the leader until he died. And then there was a kind of consensus of the group. Not exactly in the election, but there was a sort of group consensus who'd become the next leader. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So maybe it happened that the you know, the leader that he's criticizing just died. And, and then it seemed reasonable f- to the group that he, that Chinute would take over. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that makes sense. Somehow it, it, somehow that happened. Why mm-hmm. he was so influential. Uh, he has a fantastic command of the Bible mm-hmm. and he can work in everything he says. Uh, not just, not just quotations from scripture, but, applying it to the specific situation. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And I think that was powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So what else? So what in the time of Shanute, what were some things going on in in the broader um, like uh, ecclesiastical history? So I know like you, you mentioned the Council of Chalcedon. Can, so can you talk about yeah. why that was such a issue of that well, time? Yeah. Well, you know, we, Loosely, you could say the fourth century was the early fourth century was the time of the Trinitarian controversy, right? And that mm-hmm. sort of settled at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed, which was slightly modified in 381 at uh, Constantinople. Uh, you know, uh, the nature of the Trinity, Father, mm-hmm. Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah. But then uh, there's a focus on specifically the nature of Christ. How can he be both God and man? And that kind of reaches a crescendo, for a smaller one, first in the Council of Ephesus in 431, which was dominated by Cyril of Alexandria. Shinute actually attended the Council of Ephesus as mm-hmm. part of uh, Cyril of Alexandria's sort of traveling party. He brought a lot of monastic leaders and other bishops with him, there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that council affirms that, you know, Christ is both God and man, mm. um, condemning the slightly different teachings of Nestorius. And Chinute specifically criticizes Nestorius in some of his writings, that, that Mary was, did, was not Theotokos, did mm-hmm. not give birth to God, but only Christotokos. Right. Only Christ, that God could not have been born. Well, Cyril's position is basically, uh, he is, she is Theotokos, that Christ is from two natures, divine and human, but one one nature became incarnate. Is the position of Cyril, and Chinute really supports that. Occasionally in his sermons, he will go through a few basic points, Hmm. and he'll criticize the counterposition of Nestorius. Uh, But, you know, he always manages to bring it around to something that connects with the experience of his listeners, say, in public sermons. Like, what difference does this make for the Eucharist? Hmm. 
if you think that uh, Christ is not really God, let's put it loosely, then perhaps you also think that the Eucharist, the, the bread and wine, is just a symbol. Hmm. No, it's not. It absolutely is the body and blood of God. Hmm. He, he will always bring it around to some kind of um, aspect of worship. Hmm. Interesting. So his view of Christ, his Christology was, or it informed his pastoral ministry? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Hmm. Uh, and yet, what's interesting is that he will touch base with these kind of uh, more uh, complicated theological issues and mm-hmm. give, you know, kind of a capsule version of it. I mean, these are sermons delivered sometimes just to monastic groups in his own community, sometimes to lay people who uh, he preached publicly about three or four times a year in the local church so other people could hear his sermons. You know? and, and, you know, this is a, a rural area. He's going to keep it down to kind of a basic level, mm-hmm. right? Not, not a theological treatise. Yeah. He seems to have read some theological treatises because he occasionally quotes things, but not a lot. But mostly it's down to the, you know, the practical. Hmm. What are we doing when we take, receive the Eucharist? You know, it's not a symbol. It's hmm. real. And then he'll always somehow transition to what I think of as um, Jesus piety, i.e. after touching base with these theological issues, Mm -hmm. he'll segue to uh, practical recommendations. Whenever you go out on your boat, say Jesus. When you're working in the field, say Jesus. Like the prayer that you start some activity with a little prayer, and it's always, he always uses the name of Jesus. So there's an interesting, for me, it's always been interesting, the combination of um, awareness of and touching base with the pretty sophisticated theological issues of the time, but bring it right down to a personal relationship with Jesus for his audience. And so in can, his own oh, life, too. I mean, right. he, t- he sometimes talks about his own prayer. Hmm. And he will address Jesus. You know, he's sick, and he'll say, "Jesus, take this away from me." <laughs> and he'll he'll record that in some of his works. So I'm interested to hear more about that, though the Jesus piety and um, the relationship of Christology and the Eucharist. Um, so that those are really fascinating ideas for me. So can we talk about the Jesus piety? What what was the significance of just you know saying Jesus when we're traveling, or Jesus when? You know, they were sick or something. It's like, um, um, I understand that to be, you want a personal relationship in Mm. difficulty, and you're using Jesus' personal name as opposed to God. I mean, absolutely, it's a high Christology that is Jesus is God, Mm -hmm. but but you're addressing him by his human name. Hmm. Interesting. So it it was like a... Like a plea, like a yeah, yeah. Like I'm in I the mean, situation. Any yes, all of those kind of situations. I'm looking at Stephen Davis has translated some of this material. Um, he, he states in one of his um, a sermon known as "I Am Amazed." Hmm. When we name Jesus, we name the Holy Trinity: Father is Father, Son is Son, Holy Spirit is Holy Spirit. 
uh, as you celebrate and rejoice, Jesus, as you sorrow and grieve, quote, Jesus. Mm. Uh, when you see a wild beast, a terrifying event, say, Jesus. I mean, he'll, so in other words, he affirms the theological principle. Mm-hmm. He is Father, Son, and, you know, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But yeah. in life, what are we relying on? His personal name hmm. evokes the other things, but it's got that human quality, you could say. And he yeah. sometimes, in his own, he, he occasionally writes about his, he had a chronic illness of some kind. He lived to be pretty old, but he had a chronic illness. Hmm. And so sometimes in, in writings, he will just uh, kind of, complain about that. He's suffering. And you'll say, Jesus, take this away. Mm. It's very human. Yeah. It's always seemed very human to me. And and there's an emotional attachment to Jesus. Interesting. So but it wasn't like a you know, I know I know a lot of modern believers would use Jesus as like a genie or like a, you know, a magic Wishing. No, no. It wasn't like that? Where I don't think so. No, mm. it's more that uh, that whatever is going on in your life, acknowledge Jesus is there with you. And in his sermon, he just kind of uses the name, you oh, know, when you're, when you're celebrating, when you're going out in your boat, you know, Jesus. It's acknowledging, but of course, especially if there's some difficulty, mm-hmm. you know, they're living in a, they're living in an area where, yes, all kinds of wild animals could be uh, a problem. You're working out in the fields. You know, various things could happen. Hmm. Interesting. No, I, I I like that. Jesus piety. Were there any other aspects of Jesus piety, or was, or was it solely around that that concept of invoking the name of Jesus just in everyday life? Uh, I, you know, I'm. That's an interesting question. It, I think it probably also connects with his idea of the Eucharist, that it's real. This is actually the body and blood hmm. of God and he, sure. uh, Jesus. So did he ever explain why he, like, that was so important to him? Not really. Uh, you know, an interesting character in that you have those early writings where he's con- criticizing the leadership, and then you don't know too much about how he actually became leader. And then he's there's all these writings, um, some addressed to the women's community, some to the men's community, some sermons delivered to lay people in the area. Um, how that, how his ideas developed, I personally think it's from, you join the monastery when you're rather young, mm-hmm. and you're just immerse yourself in the Bible, immerse yourself in the Bible. He, he has certain writings where, for instance, the period where the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness before they get to the promised land, the community that's in the wilderness, and the parts of the Old Testament that talk about that encampment and how they behaved in the encampment. I'm thinking of areas in the Pentateuch that talk about that. There's a way that sometimes he writes as though the monastery is like that. Hmm. It's an encampment in an isolated area. 
Not that it, that it wasn't really that isolated. It was only a few miles from the nearest village. But symbolically, yeah. it's like the desert encampment of the children of Israel. And that would make sense because in, in our preliminary conversation, I mentioned the, um, the rule that they, the white monastery lived by, which had a lot of cursed be. Cursed be right, those right. who do this. Cursed be. Right. And that reflect you said that reflects the language of the Bible. Absolutely, that's that's straight out of Deuteronomy, the the um, Coptic translation of the Pentateuch. The same verbal constructions are what he uses in those texts. So interesting. But of course, the content, you know, Deuteronomy. I'm blanking on some examples of cursed be something in Deuteronomy. He adapts that to the to the monastic situation. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he, I think those cursed be formula, he's inherited from a predecessor as head of that monastery. Mm-hmm. They, they certainly um, compiled rules at different times earlier, and they're all sort of um, compiled at the time of Shanute in mm-hmm. their uh, archives. Got it. Um, but it's always a biblical formula. They all, Either cursed be, or they'll use the, the formula of the Ten Commandments: "Thou shalt not, whatever you know, to specific monastic things." But the but the verbal formulas are the same. I think that's really that's important. Yeah, you're you're just immersed in the Bible, and you kind of think in biblical language. Yeah, right. but you're fr- but you're free to adapt it to the problems that, of your present situation, right? Mm-hmm. You're, this monastic organization that you're trying to uh, encourage and keep on a good footing. You know, problems arise. You try to solve them, but it's all sort of seen through a biblical filter. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, got it. And you said um, they were really immersed in the Psalms. Is that what, correct? Psalm, yes, Psalm recitation. When you joined the, one of these monasteries, typically. You had to memorize material. Uh, if you didn't know how to read, you'd someone would try to teach you how to read. Uh, but you know, memorization could go on even before you knew how to read, mm-hmm. right? Just mm-hmm. memorization. Yeah. And they, they'd start off memorizing Psalms and and also sometimes the letters of Paul, memorize oh, wow. them, because whenever you go about your work. I mean, everyone is working in the monastery. They're preparing food for other monks, or they're mm-hmm. going out to work in the fields, or they're taking care of some animals. Um, generally, the practice would be to recite in a kind of low voice while you did this. Oh, interesting. You know, as opposed to just chatting with other people. Hmm. There's definitely a preference for recitation. It it it's You can see that it it um, it solves some problems, too. Right? <laughs> yeah, of people sort of because some of his writings, he's well aware that people are standing around gossiping about other people mm. in the community, and you know how do you get that under control? Well, one way would be to in, in really encourage and enforce this practice of recitation, a low voice, because everybody is doing it. It's not like all in unison. People are reciting what they've memorized, but there'd be kind of a low mutter, you know, oh, interesting. in the yeah. background. Wow. Huh. Did he, did Chanute ever have any, like, comments on the relationship between Scripture and Jesus? 
or any understanding of those? Because he, he clearly has a deep respect. The whole community does. Yeah. So I'm I just mean, curious. You know, he doesn't really talk about that. I mean, I, I know that he would have considered all of the Bible to be divinely inspired. Hmm. Everyone who wrote was divinely inspired. It's... He, he, as far as I'm aware, he never gets into the questions of um, apparent contradictions, inconsistencies, say, between the Gospels. No. Sure. He doesn't really get into that. It's all divinely inspired. Yeah. Is it, did um, the Coptic Church have the Gospel of Thomas and... No, no, no. I mean, it's interesting that where the Gospel of Thomas, the Coptic version of the Gospel of Thomas, was discovered, along with all the other Nag Hammadi texts, yeah. it's not that far from the White Monastery. Hmm. Maybe less than 50 miles farther upstream. Yeah. Uh, it, there's been a lot of study about who exactly produced those manuscripts that included the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, all I'd be inclined to state at this time would be that these were people also who who were interested in ascetic practice, Hmm. some form of ascetic practice. Most of the Nag Hammadi texts, including Gospel of Thomas, promote ascetic practice. But whether they had their own sort of monastic community, Mm -hmm. like that of Shanute, no, it's not clear. Gotcha. But they were not that far away, and, and yet he shows no uh, awareness of the specific texts that were found at Nakamadi. So He's interesting, yeah. There's, so you're saying there's nothing, there's no connection in his writing, or uh, no. even allusions no. to. No, no. He's aware of people who are sort of uh, uh, heretics from his point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but not that particular corpus of texts. No. And you could also say there was a Manichaean community out into the desert uh, west of the Nile uh, that was well-established and active. Uh, He doesn't show any awareness of them either, though he does occasionally mention the prophet Mani as sort of the arch-heretic, but he doesn't go into any detail. They're there, but they're not really impacting his community life. Very much. Yeah. It's interesting. People are in their little, it's almost like they're in their self-contained communities. And yet, he's very aware of what's going on with the uh, Bishop of Alexandria. I don't know if you, you know, the Bishop in Alexandria, uh, at least starting with uh, 3rd century, they were in the practice of sending out a festal letter every year announcing the date of Easter for that year, hmm. and therefore when Lent would begin, they'd send this out to all the communities throughout the Nile Valley. Um, and that was a that was kind of an exceptional thing. You don't see that in other Christian areas at that time. Hmm. It was a way for the Bishop of Archbishop of Alexandria to keep in touch with his entire territory. And usually they provided some kind of basic uh, doctrinal teaching, along mm. with the, simply announcing the date of Easter. Shinute, various spots, he shows, he knew these letters, he read them, he would 
expound on them a little bit to his listeners, hmm. to his sermons. So the, it's it's interesting. On the one hand, he doesn't seem to be aware of things like Gnostic groups nearby or Manichaean groups nearby, and yet they're all really connected to the bishop, the archbishop in Alexandria. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Do you think he was like protecting his community from these outside re- uh, influences? Well, he was certainly trying to. I mean, mm-hmm. he the the archbishop does seem to have known more about what was going on throughout, you know, other other potentially threatening groups. Mm-hmm. And and when Cyril of Alexandria goes to the Council of Ephesus, he's obviously making a big effort to take. Uh, people from Egypt, monastic leaders, mm-hmm. other bishops, as a kind of supporting party. He wants them to come to the Council of Ephesus with him, support his position, show that he, has, show that he Cyril, mm-hmm. has uh, everyone in Egypt kind of on his side. Yeah. Yeah, I liked how you said it in your writing. You said that Cyril brought an entourage. Yeah. Like he brought a a group to support yes. him. That, uh, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, you know, Nestorius, his main opponent at the Council of Ephesus, certainly had his supporters. Mm-hmm. He did. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't as successful as Cyril at kind of carrying the day. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And he goes into exile. In fact, he's exiled in Egypt, I believe. Mm-hmm. So... Let's, can we go into the like the nitty gritty of um, Chanute's and like even just the the Coptic Christology, the as some people call them the Miaphysites? Can we talk about Miaphysite? How, yeah, how are they different than what people Miaphysite. call like Chalcedonian or right, Chalcedon right. Christology? Right. I mean, at the Council of Chalcedon, um, there was an attempt. Uh, to slightly modify the teaching of Cyril. You know, the formula at Chalcedon was in two natures, that Christ is in two natures, Mm -hmm. divine and human, where Cyril would have always stressed from two natures, that what became incarnate was one nature without exactly spelling out how that worked. You know, miaphysis, miaphysite, one nature. Um, mm. But it didn't mean that he had only a divine nature, that it was some kind of a unity, a unity. So after the Council of Chalcedon, people who were closer to, wanted to stay closer to Cyril's teaching uh, in Egypt and in other areas of the Christian world, Syriac-speaking areas, uh, they rejected the Council of Chalcedon. Mm. And that's the group known today. They used to be called Monophysite. Now a better term is Miaphysite. Monophysite, it could be in, misinterpreted to think that they they believed only in the divine nature, one you know one nature. Mm-hmm. But Miaphysite is closer to Cyril's formula, and it it, it stresses a unity, a unity. Mm-hmm. And There's only would, one okay. nature, and he and he absolutely supported that. Okay, but you know he's not really. By the time the Council of Chalcedon came along, he was quite old, and there's not much in his writings that shows reaction to Chalcedon. Hmm. Egypt as a whole pretty much rejected Chalcedon, and and that's 
that's true today, i.e. the Coptic Orthodox Church is Miaphysite, like along with uh, Syriac-speaking groups, the Armenians are Miaphysites, the Ethiopian Orthodox are Miaphysites. Uh, This group collectively known as the Oriental Orthodox that don't accept the Council of Chalcedon. Yeah, it's It's, so interesting. And it's a shame in a way because I've always thought that if the Arab conquest hadn't come along, all these church communities would have been better able to communicate. Hmm. They might have come up with a way to compromise of some kind. Yeah. And But then the Arab conquest really cut off communication. It, the councils ceased to happen in the same way, right? Mm. Um, that could have included Egypt and, and Syria and farther east. But all that became uh, Arab-controlled territory, Muslim-controlled territory. So the same kinds of councils just didn't happen anymore. Right, right. And, and now, you know, there are various efforts underway to uh, not necessarily unite everybody, but uh, come to some agreements that would say make intercommunion possible, right? Yeah. Things like that. Sure. sure. Practical things. Practical matters without necessarily coming up to some coming up with some great theological compromise. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I mean, for for them to be so pastoral, I had a pastor once say, "You can't have peace unless you can take communion together." So that makes sense. I know, I know. Yeah. So um, I, and I remember that um, reading about when when Constantine took over, um, and when he became emperor, and and then he like prescribed to the tome of Leo. He he enforced uh, like a Nicene view, right? And what that Const- was like. Constantine, oh, yeah, Constantine was very involved in the uh, Council of Nicaea, three twenty-five. Yeah, he thought uh, that it was part of his job as emperor to uh, come up with uh, an agreed-upon formula. You know uh, that because there were pre three twenty-five, there were a lot of different views circulating about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, some would have said that the son was um, another god, sort of a lesser god. Mm-hmm. But Council of Nicaea kind of solves that problem. And, and Constantine took a lot of responsibility for it. What happened in the 5th century with the emperor Justinian, he thought he could do the same thing at the Council of Chalcedon, mm. i.e. come up with some formula that everybody would accept. But that didn't happen. Mm. Certain large Christian communities just completely rejected yeah. Chalcedon. Yeah. And then, you know, before, within a hundred years, there's the Arab conquest. Right. Right. Well, I, I only bring that up because it's interesting just commenting that looking at the first, you know, 500 years of the Coptic history is that it seems like they were always in opposition and even under the oppression of the Roman church and like the, the Western church. So that's very interesting just because of their theological differences. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the church in Egypt 
from the beginning was clearly a mixture of Greek-speaking people and Coptic-speaking people. Mm-hmm. And the leadership in Alexandria, a succession of archbishops in Alexandria, are from the Greek-speaking group. Mm. But that that doesn't seem to have affected their relationship with the larger Coptic-speaking population. They knew how to communicate with that population. Mm. There was a sense of we're all Egyptians in a certain way. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. And, and that really continues after Chalcedon. They're, with the exception of sort of minorities, they're pretty much united in the anti-Chalcedonian Miaphysite mm-hmm. position. Yeah. Again, under the leadership of the archbishop. And now the Coptic Orthodox Church in Egypt is, it's kind of, it's the same. The uh, patriarch uh, really is undisputed leader of the entire group. Mm. And, and worldwide, of course, that now includes the diaspora. Yeah. Lots of Copts in the United States, Europe, Australia. Wow. Hmm. Hmm. So to wrap us up here, I've I and I and we you can say no, I can uh, <laughs> um edit this out, but why does Chanute's work matter today? Why does his view of Christ matter today? Well like why should more people read about him? Hmm, that's an interesting question. For me there's there are two things about him. I have to say, for me, very important is his work as a monastic leader. Hmm. Fourth and fifth century is the beginning of communal monasticism, people who come together to pursue an ascetic life, and they're living under a rule. And we see this then transported to the West, and the history of Europe would be entirely different without communal monasticism. The influence of monasteries in, in Europe in the medieval period mm. into the Renaissance was enormous, mm. culturally, educationally. They were the kind of repositories of education for centuries, wow. communal monasteries in the West. But it's a movement that was created in Egypt. It has its origin in Egypt. Oh, wow. And so when you read Chanute, you can see someone near the beginning struggling <laughs> to make this work. How can people live under a rule and support each other? Supposedly, mm. you're here to pursue a kind of a life of prayer and asceticism, but it's a group. Yeah. You haven't just gone off to live in a cave by yourself. <laughs> so he's struggling, with, he's struggling with that, and you really see it, mm. the problems that arise, how he tries to solve them. It doesn't always work, you know, kind yeah. of thing. Because sometimes you discipline people, and they, it doesn't change them, and so you have to expel them from the monastery. Hmm. Some of his works talk about that. Certain people just have to leave, hmm. even if they don't want to. Yeah. But on the other hand, his the other interesting aspect of his work is the way, because he did preach publicly, communicating his ideas to the general population. And he's so immersed in the Bible Everything he writes is just biblical language reinterpreted for the local audience and the mm. local problems. It's interesting to see how, how he does that. It's not like his works are just a string of quotations. No, yeah. 
It's more like you've absorbed the ideas of the Bible, and they naturally come out when mm. you speak, applied to the particular situation. Yeah. Interesting. And that's a good encouragement for all of us, right, to be immersed in the Scripture. I wish I had that kind of time, honestly, <laughs> to, <laughs> to read it. But I like the idea of, of muttering. That's a beautiful concept that I... Yeah. Memorized, memorized passages. And, you know, when you're engaged in some task, just reciting it in a low mm -hmm. voice. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not, on, you know, I mean, people, there are certain practices that people, oh, that, it, that maybe would involve music, you know. Mm. You're engaged in some task, say, in the home, cleaning something. You know, I, I've certainly observed people who do that. They'll they'll sing. Yeah. For instance, this is not too not terribly unlike that. Mm. But you're using the memorization, which was required when you joined the community. You had to start memorizing. Wow. So everybody had a sort of little fund of those things. And mm. well, thank you so much for informing us on this uh, reformer, revolutionary thinker, and pastor. Uh, I do appreciate your time. I know that you are very busy. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. It was interesting to think about this and try to uh, explain it in a kind of basic way. Yeah, yeah. No, it was very helpful and very informative. So thank you. You're, you're welcome. You can support us by continuing to listen, sharing an episode with a friend, or leaving a review. Find us on Instagram or Facebook. And if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can reach out to Justin personally through his email, which you can find in the show notes. Your feedback helps us grow as a podcast. Until next time, friends. <laughs>